The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gap Fest for Thursday, February 8th, the Glowy Edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. So before we get going, I have three things to tell you, and I'll tell them to you quickly. One is that we're recording in a slightly different way um, because my kid is sick. So I'm recording from home, and because I have, you know, DIY radio skills, I'm recording myself. So it might sound a little bit different, but we'll go back to the regular way next time. Um, Second, we need a new intern, um, our awesome and amazing Daniel Schrader. It's time to let him loose and fly free in his life and do bigger and wonderful things. Um, But Daniel, can you tell us what is required of a double X intern? Jump in for a minute. Yeah, sure thing. So the uh, normal things are you you collect... um you collect topics for the week for them to discuss, and then you do research on the topics that they've chosen so that you can send around a, um, information for them to be prepared for the show. And then you attend recordings and help the producer, Vera Lynn, with whatever she needs. Um, and it's a really great opportunity because uh, you learn how to produce. You learn um, how to uh, research. It's just a very it, – it's just a great position, and you get to work for – four amazing women that I uh, couldn't have been happier to spend my time with. Oh, thank you. Um, Also, we should say you should be in New York so you can attend the recordings in New York and help everyone out put putting the show together. We welcome applicants of all backgrounds. So please apply doublexgabfest at slate.com and put intern in the subject line. Okay, our final announcement. We were schooled by our Australian and New Zealand listeners so hard these last couple of weeks. I think for the word regressive, that was the problem, calling them regressive in gender relations. And it was basically like like subject line Donald Trump. Like when your president <laughs> is not Donald Trump, you can talk to me about regressive. That was the start of the conversation. And then it devolved from there. So we're sorry. We We were, you know... We don't know what we're talking about. On the other hand, it was amazing to learn how many people are listening to us in the Antipodes. I was just going to say that. Who knew? We even heard from a couple of New Zealand sheep. (laughs) Yeah, don't give up on us, though. We love you. It is really, really cool to hear from you. So don't give up. We'll do better next time. Okay, let's get going. Our topics today. First, the sexual abuse scandal in gymnastics that unfolded in Michigan over the last month. Second, we're going to talk about skincare, our new religion. And third, Jordan Peterson, our new guru for the age of the angry man. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss Lady Doritos, which aren't really a thing, but became an internet thing this week. But what we'll talk about is, is the concept of a snack specially designed for women sexist? If you're not a Slate Plus member, you should be. Visit slate.com slash XX Plus to start your membership. All right, the gymnastics scandal. The scandal unfolded in Michigan over the last month. 150 women accused Larry Nasser, a gymnastics doctor, of molesting them, many of them when they were very young. Uh, they're now older, in their 20s, and their teens. This happened over many years at many institutions, and he was ultimately convicted. And then at the sentencing, Judge Rosemary Aquilina, and I say her name, you don't usually say a judge's name because it was an amazing spectacle that she orchestrated. She allowed dozens of victims one by one to read their impact statements to his face while he was in the room, which was amazing to watch. It was streamed. So I'm sure listeners have picked up the basics, but let's just lay some groundwork here. Um, 
June, do you want to just say, give us a basics of sort of what happened, how many people were involved, just for people who haven't tuned in super closely? Yeah. So Larry Nasser, uh, he's often referred to as uh, the doctor. He is not an MD. He's a doctor of osteopathic medicine. Uh, he was the official team doctor of the USA gymnastics team. You know, he's he's worked with many Olympics teams. He was also uh, he also had a very high position at Michigan State University and the uh, the faculty or the the very highest levels of the MSU faculty. Right up to the president was defending him to the end. Uh, for more than twenty years, he was abusing women. Uh, in fact, actually, as you said, Hannah, mostly girls, because that's who is involved in gymnastics at the elite levels. Uh, and he, you know, more than 265 people, as they said in the newspapers, but women um, accused Nasser of sexual abuse. Uh, and when he finally came to trial after, um, you know, years in which there had been ac- some accusations and he had been kept in position in at both MSU and at USA Gymnastics, uh, he pleaded guilty. So it wasn't that there was a trial that uh, Judge Rosemary Aquilina uh, was presiding over. This was actually a sentencing hearing uh, where all of these uh, young women testified. Yeah. Now, the things that were unusual about the scandal, and June, you've mentioned some of them. One is... Uh, just the kind of cult of the sports doctor. And you're right, he he wasn't, you know, you can, there is a degree you can get in sports medicine. It's odd that he didn't have a degree in sports medicine, that that wasn't even his specialty. Um, But how a kind of cult arises around, that was hard for me to get my head around. Like, why, he's just like, why would anyone like bow down to the doctor, you know? Um, but yeah. I think that's a thing. That's a thing. Like you see it in football, you see it everywhere. It's like the they, they, they have a sort of very intimate, I mean, Tom Brady's like, like the most extreme example of this, but like a very enmeshed relationship with the people who take care of their bodies. Yeah, I mean, it's and it's often in lots of sports, there are these conflicting relationship with doctors, you know, they work with the team doctor, who's serving the team, not the individuals and who, you know, in something like football, often push players to do things that aren't necessarily good for them as individuals, but are possibly good for the team, because they're serving the team. And in this case, I mean, heaven knows what was going on. I mean, I think there is this it, it is all about elite that the you know, that the young women who get to the very top of uh, gymnastics are so motivated and have made so many sacrifices and have put up with so much pain that uh, his treatments, uh, you know, as I say, he was an osteopath or he is an osteopath. And so, you know, it's manipulation is what they're known for. And so one of the, the thing that was that was is sexual abuse, which is not a treatment. Um, it, he was giving them intravaginal manipulation. He was fisting them. And I understand why more papers didn't go into detail. I'd never want detail when, uh, when they're talk, when we're talking about sexual abuse. But in this case, it felt so relevant because it is not the treatment. There is this is not a medical treatment. For twenty years, he was doing this, and people are either so desperate or afraid, or you know, knowing that they cannot you know, get in the face of the establishment, they can't book the establishment, they were having to go along with it or essentially growing up believing that this was what they were supposed to do. And and it's it's just maddening. Right. Because he had a slightly different like approach and he came in saying, oh, I'm not I'm an osteopath. I'm doing a different thing. I wonder if people were like, well, that's just what you do. And he's better because he's different. Like I was just trying to 
the the thing with me with the scandal has been trying to wrap my head around how, you know, I, I understand why the girls wouldn't report. But why is this doctor, you know, considered irreplaceable, right? right? It's not Bella Caroli. It's not a coach who's like been the only person to sort of turn gymnastics around. And as a side note, by the way, um, there have been a bunch of abuse scandals involving um, coaches, uh, sexual abuse scandals involving coaches in USA Gymnastics. It's clearly a quite a warped culture that seems to attract men who are attracted to young girls, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, what, what the what the hell? Like, what, there was no other doctor, no other, like, you know, essentially physical therapist? I mean, it is the cult of the individual, isn't it? That this is the doctor who was the doctor of, uh, you know, these Olympic teams, these Olympic winners. You know, you keep going with the winner, winning trumps everything in sports. And, and of course, we know they were winning despite his intervention is certainly not because of it, but that is kind of how it goes in sports. You know, if you're if you're winning, don't change anything. Don't change anything. Don't even change your you know the color of your shirt, whatever. I mean, it's, it's there's so much weird thinking in this in this world, especially at these really high levels. Now, June, I know you're a person who is into the Olympics, and so I, I'm trying to ask this question in the correct way before we we switch to the spectacle of the courtroom, which is it feels to me like the kind of the kind our association with gymnastics and sort of who we think of as the as the girls and the types of bodies and the strengths and everything like that in gymnastics has really shifted over the time he was doing his evil deeds like over the last 20 years like we used to think of gymnastics girls as kind of little girls who were were. frail and whose bodies were frail and it's really not that way anymore a lot of them are you know past puberty they're women and the bodies are much much stronger um and so i was i was thinking about that in terms of this scandal like like this was just an image of just like girlhood and vulnerability but that isn't exactly where gymnastics is now in 2017 right well i mean i think 2018 yeah you know, yes, there's there is at the very elite levels the the body the type of body has changed a little bit since 1997 that people have to be women have to be 16 to compete. I mean, they are often post puberty, but their bodies don't necess- they don't necessarily go through puberty uh, because of the way that they train and you know the what they eat and just th- their regimen. Um, but certainly, the the amount of of physical strength is much more. Uh, I'm not sure that that really has changed anything about the the power dynamics, though, and about the sort of the kowtowing to the authorities. And I also think, uh, you know, there was a really interesting interview in Slate that Isaac Chotner did with Joan Ryan, who wrote, uh, you know, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, which is way back from 1995. But it's about, uh, you know, young women in gymnastics and skating. And, you know, she said, look, the the gymnastics program, the gymnastics system is pretty much the same as, you know, what we think of as the grooming process that pedophiles go through. I mean, it is it's the system is just, again, at the elite levels, you know, when you're looking at like even college uh, gymnasts who are, you know, elite, but they tend to have more normal bodies. But it's not so much about the specifics of bodies, I think. It's about vulnerability and, you know, being beholden to men in uh, or not necessarily men, but to authorities in a way that's more so than even in other sports, which I think are also prone to the same kind of treatment and behavior. I also think um, that in as much as this is incredibly particular to the culture of gymnastics and elite women's sports, 
it it did also make me think about what these girls had in common with other girls and women who've been abused. And and during this this whole sort of Me Too moment, I keep coming back to the, a column that Maureen O'Connor wrote for The Cut a couple months ago where she argued that, um, you know, th- this whole moment, all, all of the abuse that they'd covered up for so many years is really an outcropping of the shame that our culture feels around sex and that until we can actually talk about sex, we can't talk about sexual abuse. And if you're, you know, if you're a 14 year old girl who's been touched incredibly inappropriately, you feel ashamed by it. Right. And that that is like a really, really hard thing to change. Um, but that just was what stuck out to me about this moment. And obviously now shame is being turned on men. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that's not deserved, but like it, it just is so obviously ingrained in our culture. Well, so this is this is a good way to shift talking about what happened in the courtroom, because it felt like what Judge Rosemary Aquilina was trying to engineer was bigger than the crime itself. Like the way that she was taught, it felt like she was cre- she was responding to a cultural moment. Um, it, it was almost Nancy Grace-ish. I mean, it was like, I'm going mm-hmm. to force you, mm-hmm. force you to see the ramifications of your work. Like I watched a lot of videos of it as it was unfolding because mm-hmm. it was amazing like i've never seen anything like it it was so moving for one thing to see the girls reading their testimonies and to do to say like you will not crush me you know i will get beyond this um but it was mostly her behavior like she lit she said to him at one point i wish that cruel and unusual punishment were possible because i would like for people to do to you what you did to other people um and, and she you know it was it was it was really um it was really amazing to watch um, because victim impact statements are relatively new in American courtrooms. Nobody knows what to do with them, how long they should go on, what's the purpose of them. Um, And so she just basically took it as far as she could take it. Um, What did you guys think of the whole courtroom spectacle aspect of it? Well, I thought I would draw somewhat of a distinction between um, the the victim statements and her speaking. I, I, um, found the women and girls talking incredibly powerful, and I salute her for for allowing that and 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 um, pressing it to become more and more of a thing. However, her own sort of uh, self-aggrandizement is what it essentially her her speech her speeches felt to me like a little bit of self-aggrandizement that she was taking this moment to make herself a hero, to make herself a crusader. Um, and I just found it a little bit appro- inappropriate coming from the bench. Obviously, it's different in a sentencing than during the trial itself. Still, I, I, you know, I salute her impulse, but I uh, and part of her execution. But I was a little turned off by her own contributions. Yeah, absolutely. I think the when she encouraged, not terribly subtly, uh, prison rape, or essentially said that she she hopes. I mean, her actual quote was. I would allow someone or many people to do to him what he did to others. Essentially, <laughs> I hope he gets raped in prison, which not cool. That is yeah. not okay. I mean, I have a big issues with that, but I also, Noreen, agree that the, the victim impact statements were not only powerful, but really seemed to like have an impact on the women who had lived mm-hmm. through this. The, the act of doing it, at least from what they said, which is what we should listen to, really was cathartic, more than just cathartic, but really changed something inside them. And you don't think part of the reason this was all fascinating was because that kind of vengeance aspect that she 
injected into it. Like I have been thinking about that. If if it were a kind of calm, orderly courtroom situation, it would feel a lot like what is happening now in our culture, which is sort of somebody gets called out or we learn about somebody's bad behavior. But the thing that is missing is a moment of kind of direct confrontation and vengeance in a very kind of biblical way. And I feel like that is partly what people found satisfying. It would not have been as satisfying if they had just read their victim impact statements out loud. It would have been sort of moving. But there was something about him having to sit there, him petitioning, please, can you not, can, can I not hear any more of those? And her forcing him in a slightly, you know, one could say like, inappropriate way, um, forcing the whole thing into a place of vengeance, which is what like made it made it powerful. I have no problem with her making him sit through it. He he should he need he he should sit through you know twenty years of it. I have no problem with that. Just don't don't um, glory in the fact that he's going to be sexually assaulted or encourage him to be sexually assaulted. That's not cool. Well, do you, Hannah? Do you think that they the the women would not have sort of taken the same tone if she had not been um, you know speaking in that register herself like i mean if you watch ali reisman's hers hers you know she's quite famous that's a clip that made the rounds a lot and she she addresses larry very directly she's very angry at him do you think that she just would not have done it that way if uh the judge hadn't hadn't set up the courtroom in the way that she did um, it's hard to say because I think probably, I mean, there were, how many women who spoke? It was a lot. Like, I think on the like, docket yeah. it was 70 or 80, was, or I'm not sure if they all spoke, but that's the number of people who could have spoken. Um, cause there was 150 victims, but not all of them spoke in the courtroom. I think that, um, there could have been many tones, I suppose, and many ways of viewing the story and many ways of seeing how it had affected you. And I'm sure for each person, it was different. And so I think to allow anger is fine and appropriate. Like, I think it would have been worse if the only tone in there had been sort of sad and destroyed. Mm -hmm. Like, that Mm -hmm. would have made me feel worse if it was just a lot of people that he just kind of ground down into the dirt. So I have to say, I was happy to see some of the kind of rise back up energy in the courtroom. Um, which was driven by her but I'm not sure like it was there was just something odd about her just kind of orchestrating like bringing the young women in and orchestrating this 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 I don't know I don't know the the anger feels really appropriate to me I mean it's not only at him the the you know the ultimate perpetrator but at all these other institutions that you know we've seen these cases in the last couple of weeks where Women who were abused by him, sexually abused by him, dec- you know, l- long after the first accusations had come in, and not like one or two, but like dozens. And he'd been, you know, there have been stories in newspapers, and he was still being allowed to have sessions with young women. Like there is some very justifiable anger, and and like I think, but I think there are there are there's a stage at which like. You you can't you can't go past certain points, but anger feels entirely reasonable. Well, also, Hannah, I've been thinking about this as a journalist. How you present these stories, you know, um, and obviously a judge is different than a journalist. But she she was acting as an advocate in that moment, and I happen to think that like the best thing you can do as an advocate is get out of the way of people to tell their own stories. Like I, you know, in the past week or so. There was this Maureen Dowd article in which um, Uma Thurman told her her story of being um, abused by Harvey Weinstein. 
And it w- there was so many distracting details in the story. And that's obviously not the same thing. But it, it turned the attention a little bit away into this meta narrative about like how Maureen Down had presented the story and why had she written in this glossy magazine kind of way. And then in this instance, the story becomes, oh, is this judge going to like run for something? Is she going to be the next crusading like politician? And I just think that it's not the moment to be self-aggrandizing when you're trying to tell these people's stories. That's such a good point. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I just want to say, like one 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 more note of hesitation because in general honestly i thought it was like a beautiful beautiful moment like it just like i cried listening to these testimonies hearing them on the radio it was kind of an amazing moment and very different from what you normally hear so i don't wish it didn't happen but there is another element of these victim impact statements generally um there's a woman named susan bandis i think is how you pronounce her name b-a-n-d-e-s who's done a lot of work on victim impact statements i've looked at them and sort of what their impact is and generally what has been found um, since victim impact statements um, have come into courtrooms is that they tend, because there are like video companies that make videos of victims that they play in the courtroom, is that they have over time kind of created a sense of the perfect victim. Um, Mm -hmm. So for example, white victims over black victims, uh, young women over older women, um, better looking women. I mean, it's just like there there is a sense in which the courtroom is now orchestrating a sense of like who we in the culture think of as like the perfect vulnerable person and like we've seen this echoed on television we've seen it echoed on you know who gets whose deaths and victimhoods gets covered in the newspaper so that's like another like tiny note of hesitation i always have when you create sort of grand spectacles of sort of young women in this position that it does kind of ripple out and echo and have effects it's not to say i don't Mm -hmm. think it should have happened it's just Mm -hmm. it's just like a little footnote in my head about a huge spectacle like this totally and that's important to say however it's impossible for it not to be a spectacle when you've abused so many people yeah that's true 150 people is a lot of people and sometimes with their mothers in the room i mean the whole thing is just so horrifying um Okay, well, let's just end it by saying it was, in fact, amazing. And if you haven't seen it, everyone should tune in, watch a few videos. They're all readily available, and they're very powerful to watch. So you should tune in and watch one or two if you haven't. So now on to skincare. Um, Skincare, wow, we all noticed this kind of at the same moment, all three of us, how it's this new religion, virtuous art. I'm not even really sure what to call it. It's kind of the words you now read associated with skincare, like clean, natural, organic, a part of healing, regaining control. Uh, We discuss how skincare became a kind of religion. Uh, now, I've said this to you guys, but in my mind, it was it, it like to me, it kind of registered the way food registered at some point where I realized <laughs> like there was a correct way to be about food and that like food had to become something I thought about and cared about in a serious way. And all of a sudden, like it creeped up slowly on me that skincare was like that, too. Um, so I'm going to ask you personal questions first. I'm guessing that June <laughs> does not give a shit about skincare. No, I'm afraid I feel like somebody who... I feel you know, I feel like everybody's like the adults in Charlie Brown cartoons going whir, 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 and I just don't I don't understand but I'm very curious it's, and it's not because I'm a lesbian it's just because I'm lazy is because June has nice skin by the way I it's just it's, that it's not awful it's not good I'm sure it could be decent if I put some time in but like I I just I'm too lazy when I read about like hour or two hour 
regimes and 10 step my evening like my end of day routine is a one step like brush your teeth go to bed that's it for me <laughs> so so noreen is this tell me your relationship like do you go down you know glossier holes like how what is your relationship with skincare do you have any korean skincare products korean beauty products in your shelf like how deep have you gone or how <laughs> how much has this entered your life i'm curious about this before noreen speaks because noreen truly has magnificent skin oh thanks june uh i uh I'm interested in this intellectually. I care about skincare. I have a different approach than the typical one on the internet right now. So what people are doing now is they're like going to Reddit and they're deep reading the comments in Sephora and they're trying a million things they're ordering from Korea. And it's like slather on serum, serum, serum. I, um, you know, I I like I believe in the power of dermatology and sunscreen and like one product with like a not not a lot of chemicals in it is how I feel about skincare. And I recently introduced a retinol, which I would be happy to talk about <laughs> offline with anyone. But uh, I think that, yeah, I, I care about my skin. But these, this like um, hobbyist way of looking at right. it is very interesting to me. And actually, I'm not sure it's all about organics. It's, it's like the culture is all about organic and lack of chemicals now. But people are just putting crazy stuff on their face and just layering it on. And I think it's more about it's it's like a hobby. It's fun. Mm-hmm. It's about self-soothing. It's about Instagramming the mask of it. It's like... Uh, it's gaming the system, right? It's right. like I, I think information was a key thing that you said, June. That all of a sudden, you know, you can you can figure out like what people think about this crazy Korean skincare product or this French drugstore thing, and like you are going to figure out the system just a little bit better than anyone else. But it's not like makeup. It's not like it's very different from no. the sort of type of people who talk about it, or the way that people, or the pride that people take in it. It's it's not the same as like I found the perfect makeup, or I have. Um, highlighter like my highlighter is perfect or whatever that's like a that's like a conversation that you're like a little bit embarrassed about but this one people are just like super proud yeah and it's funny because i always thought i mean again i'm so ignorant here i'm embarrassed by my ignorance but i always kind of figured oh skincare you have to when you really get into that because you've damaged your skin with makeup and like that was everything i was thinking and it's like no it's it's about like a regime for a regime's sake it's clearly it's about looking good that that's a key part of it but it's also it is you know it's not just that people say it but given how much time they're putting in care and and all these words that we've used self-soothing um you know it's a form of it's a form of therapy which is certainly not free but it's it's just like taking control well i also think it's a shift in beauty norms yeah um i you know the ideal here is like glowy, natural glow, glowy. super health. Glowy is a huge word. Like, <laughs> so Amanda Hess wrote a smart column a while back for the New York Times Magazine about how no one talks about anti-aging projects, products anymore. That's like an embarrassing thing to say. You know, Botox is super embarrassing now. It's all about having that natural or sun-kissed, like I eat, I eat kale with every meal kind of look to your skin. And, um, you know, not having to wear a lot of makeup. The Glossier, which is this hugely trendy millennial focused brand, that's their whole thing is like you have good skin and you put on just the tiniest bit of something to highlight that. Um, Don't you think just underneath that is a sense that you can control time? Like there's a little bit of anxiety or denial or something about the inevitable that underlies this, like you should start your skin care at 32 um, and and that would and that will and that will sort of prevent bad things from happening happening like the the thing that got a lot of attention recently was those face exercises those like medically tested it was in the new york times you do these face exercises june this will kill you but it's like for for something like 
30 minutes or something and they are pro- they they have these amazing before and after pictures of doing these you know they're they're face exercises you like massage your oh. face at different points um and it's supposed to somehow halt time i don't know whenever i read it i think it has something to do with the trump administration like i feel that kind of anxiety <laughs> underneath of like everything's out of control and i'm gonna i'm gonna get the impossible under control you know by 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 putting donkey milk or whatever yeah i mean i definitely think it's about control and i definitely feel like sure you know whatever nobody ever says this out loud but clearly, you know, avoiding signs of aging is not going to be a bad thing in the workplace. I mean, there are all kinds of rational reasons. And it's also all these other things. It's also a hobby. It's also interesting. It's also a rabbit hole. Uh, see, I think it's about the age of inequality. This is the, the, you know, what everyone wants to look like now is like a rich lady. And yes. people are people are going to get in my email and say, oh, you can buy this serum for $8. That's a dupe of that expensive one. But actually, all these products add up and people are, I mean, no one used to, I mean, you, you know, like upper middle class ladies used to like slap on a moisturizer and call it a day. And now now it's like hundreds of dollars of products mm-hmm. for a lot of people, if, especially if you're experimenting. And so I think the, the beauty ideal has shifted to someone who can be like, like a Gwyneth Paltrow and like can just like play around with her face as a canvas and look great at the end of the day because she has access to, you know, healthcare and dermatology and whatever. Yeah, I mean, we talk about age and I, I just did, but it's also clearly about avoiding the working class body, which, you know, as a working class person, I feel qualified to say definitely exists. What do you mean by the rich lady thing? Because I've been thinking about how this is actually more oppressive than makeup. Makeup seems sort of democratic and equalizing to me. It doesn't seem that difficult. This seems full of like secrets. Like I've always thought about really rich ladies, um, not regular rich ladies, but like really rich ladies, that the difference between them and us, you can tell in casual time. Like anyone can dress up and look really good for a night, but there's a way in which like their casual wear is so much more cashmere and beautiful than my casual wear. Um, and that's when you can tell the difference. And I've always thought like it is some, it's like that, that, that way in which you can go to the spa and spend a, like, this seems like, like more difficult to me and less fun. Um, <laughs> but I can get into a hobby. I mean, you mentioned a hobby, like what's the, the hobbyist element is what is like hacking. Yeah. It's. I think it's like, you know, when, when a man shows you his record collection and it's like, oh, I got this and blah, blah, blah. Mm. No one else has this. And I think there's an element of that where it's like, oh, like I went really deep down the R backslash, that's the Reddit backslash skincare <laughs> addiction, uh, you know, subreddit. And I went deep into this comment and gamed out that this should be layered on top of that. And it's like, you know, people think you do it this way. But in fact, I figured out a better way to do it. I have the remix to it. Yeah. Like, it's that kind of thing. I yeah. Think. And and I think also that, you know, there's a everything is gendered, of course, but there is a very gendered kind of backlash, which I've, you know, has, has crossed my mind, you know, beauty and skincare and all of these things are as hobbies are always dismissed as like shallow and, you know, oh, so you're just being saps, you're being idiots, you're being taken advantage of in a way that like some a guy buying, because I don't think women do this much, buying like a $500 watch or, um, you know, a $1,000 bicycle. Nobody says, oh, you were taken for a ride. They're like, yeah. oh, let me see the specs on that. 
And it's it, it's a very gendered response. Like, it's not a hobby I would be interested in, but I'm also not interested in bikes or watches. I mean, the other thing, the other aspect of it that people might bring up is vanity, right? Like, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that everyone suddenly looks better in this era of, like, adding, you know, a 20-step process to your nighttime routine. But um, that's the other criticism that people make. Like, this is just women being vain, to which I would say, you know, that's unfair that, like, the culture throw this, throws this at us. And, you know, like, this is kind of a natural response. Also, like, um, it's OK to want to look good and skin. Like, I actually had a few years ago, right when I was starting a new job, I had a terrible allergic reaction to something that lasted for months. And I was like, my my skin was bad. And it just like uh, in a way that it had never been in my life. And. And it just like got in my head in this really horrible way. So I do have a lot of sympathy for for people who think it's actually an emotional thing, and, and that there is a um, a sort of confidence case to be made for doing this kind of thing. And you know, when whenever there's a discussion of um, you know whenever a discussion of skincare starts, you always hear from people who would say, in you know, in their own terms, "Look, I have bad skin. I have to do a ten step process." Yeah. And you know, there there was a piece in the outline recently that that's set off a lot of uh, discussion and uh, the author made a sort of you know, uh, you know parenthetical comment like and let's face it we, you know we only whisper it but some of these people don't even have the best skin you think well duh it's like yeah. they're doing it because they feel a need to have better skin because it is all about you know being your best being confident there's no like why would anybody not take steps to overcome something that is causing them insecurity or just feeling bad. Like, yeah, if there is a way to take care of it that doesn't break the bank, why wouldn't you? But it does buck other wellness trends. Like we talked about this a little bit before that, that like you're just slathering chemicals on your case. Mm-hmm. And no, in no other aspect of modern life are we like, you know what we should do? We should industrialize it. We should like see what we can do to make it less natural. And that's what's a little bit wild to me. Like it just again, again, this is like our backslash Noreen skin. But, um, <laughs> you know, like a simpler is usually better for me. And I have sensitive skin. That's my big question with people who are like showing all these, you know, crazy things they're trying. Don't, doesn't it make them break out like is there too, is there such a thing as too much skincare you know Hannah I'm aware that you haven't really talked about your uh, yeah. skincare routine how many uh, how many steps are in your routine and how much snail serum <laughs> um, well I'm a donkey milk girl um, no I have no idea what donkey milk is um, I um, you know here's my thing and I have to, I, I will answer that question then and I have a question I want you guys to answer for me I just feel my mom's a big skincare person. She's always, you know, this product, that product. She's always trying to sort of like push the product on me. And I enjoy it. I got no problem with the nighttime product thing. But I just in my soul feel the futility of it. It's like every time I put on skincare, you know how you're at the airport and they're like the moving walkway is ending, the moving walkway is ending. That's what I feel like. I feel like (laughs) they've just like... I'm like, why? Like, I'm, I'll do it. Like, I'll spend my time. It smells good. It's like a tiny moment of pleasure. But I can't get into the groove of like, this is actually, you know, gonna keep me younger or like, 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 time is so much more powerful than any peptide you're gonna put on my face. And so I do it just because it's like, that's what girls do. And I like things that smell nice. <laughs> but I, I can't get into the belief of it. And that's what I'm jealous of in this moment. Like, I want to be a believer. 
But I don't, I don't, like, I don't, I don't know how to do that, you know? Like, there are young women I work with now who are, like, all the, like, 20-step Korean routine and this, that, the other thing, and, like, brought me, like, a huge bag full of products, and it was super fun. But, like, I I don't have the faith. It's a weirdly young phenomenon. That's yeah. the thing that struck me. I was at, like, a work party the other night, and all these girls in their 20s were sitting around talking about their, like, skincare routine. And, like, I don't know. I don't think you need it at that age. That It can be this sort of fun hobby because you actually don't think you're going to die in your 20s, right? <laughs> that doesn't hit till 30, and that's when you need a real skincare routine. <laughs> right. That's what I think. All right. A last thing I want to ask you guys, if you can solve this problem for me. So there is one part of my brain that feels sad about this because I think, oh, like, it's just yet another way in which women have to, like, work really hard and spend a lot of money on their physical appearance. And that's, like, we always find a new way. It's like, so if we get rid of sexy, we get rid of, you know, we get rid of makeup. Now we're into natural, but natural turns out to be, like, a real pain in the ass and also really expensive. <laughs> so that's, like, mm-hmm. one side of my brain. And the other side of my brain is thinking, well, okay, here is the one time when when we're doing this and it's fun and like chicks really like it but it's not actually about looking great because I'm not sure that any guy is going to – it's not for men necessarily because no guy is necessarily going to say like, wow, those peptides are really making you glow. You know, it is actually <laughs> genuinely a woman-to-woman <laughs> beauty situation. Um, yeah. um, and, and so that's kind of inspiring about it. Like no dude – I mean I shouldn't say no dude. Maybe some dudes care. But I think in general it's like information shared between women about women and their own bodies. Yeah, but – but but I mean, yes, I, I want to sign on for that. But don't you think women reinforce beauty standards more than men in general, like women policing each other's kind of looks that and and sort of, you know, requiring the the product layer on? I don't know. I, I, I'm a little less like this is a, you know, this is the sisterhood in its best version. Yeah. You know, now, you, now that you say that, I re- remember that decades ago, I had a friend who, you know, just had that super, super problem skin, you know, just complete eruption all the time. And it was the only time that people have ever come up to me and said, hey, um, I noticed your friend has really, you know, has she tried? Like, first of all, Hmm. don't ask me. But it just seemed odd that it was something that people felt not only like they would, you know, the people who came up to me were genuinely trying to help. And they genuinely thought that, like, she cannot go on in life without my intervention. Like, it does feel like something that, you know, and that wasn't about selling product. That was just like, I... I really want to help you with this. And that that is another aspect of the woman-to-woman yeah, part of it. That's true. That's true. Our faces, ourselves. Um, all right, listeners. <laughs> well, if you have a skincare routine or ideas about skincare, especially if you have belief about skincare and you want to evangelize to me, to all of us, please write us at doublexgabfest at slate.com or go onto our Facebook page and post your note there. We would like some skincare advice. All right. Our third topic, Jordan Peterson, is a University of Toronto psychologist with millions of viewers on YouTube. He delivers somber lessons to young men about respect and discipline. And I would say he gives them a lot of love. He's like, you guys don't have enough love. I'm going to give you love. It's a tough love situation, but he's insanely popular. And he has come to feel like the guru of this age. So let's hear a few words from him. People who don't grow up don't find the sort of meaning in their life that sustains them through difficult times, and they are certain to encounter difficult times. And they're left bitter and resentful and without purpose and adrift and hostile and 
resentful and vengeful and arrogant and deceitful and, and of no use to themselves and of no use to anyone else and no partner for a woman and there's nothing in it that's good. First, for people who haven't uh, heard him or read his book, he has a new book, 12 Rules for Life. So let's talk about some of the Jordan Peterson uh, exhortations. Some of the Jordan, Jordan Pe- let's talk about some of his rules for life. I was very struck by discipline, courage, and self-sacrifice because I was reminded of a series of lesbian novels by Radcliffe about a relationship between the first daughter and the head of her secret service team. And those were all about discipline, courage, and self-sacrifice. And they were very, very inspiring. And so I could, for a minute, I was able to see what Jordan Peterson's acolytes see in his message. But then it all passed forward after that. Yeah. I think most of most of his uh, acolytes are really thinking about lesbian novels as they lesbian romance novels. Yeah. Well, so uh, he a lot of his rules for living are very sort of sensible. Like if you just read them without his explanation, you're like, yeah, your life is better when you you know only surround yourself with people who want the best for you or s- sit up straight. Like, sure, I can sign on for that. But then it's when you go into his explanations for it that you understand that his worldview is actually quite. Uh, like Nietzschean sort of like um, individual strength over everything else. That it's actually just the kind of it's just the kind of worldview that really gets under my skin, mm-hmm. to be honest. Because um, it's fascistic, and, and that in fact he's not when he says you know surround yourself with people who want the best for you. It's not like people who care about your emotions. It's like people who will be on your level and pushing you to be better and greater. It's like not actually friendship or caring. It's like a you know rising tide kind of thing. Hannah, I feel like you are the person who has, has studied. Perhaps I'm wrong about that, but I feel like you're the person who has spent most time with Jordan Peterson's message, and I'm curious curious what you have taken from it. He is playing an interesting game because like Noreen said, you know, a lot of it is so basic, you know, like apparently, you know, the most the thing that people most listen to is clean up your room, you know, and I don't even know if that's, I don't even know if that's a metaphor when people (laughs) respond to that term sort of reddit people respond to clean up your room or if because it simultaneously could be painting his supposed audience in an incredibly insulting way like you literally are guys living in your mommy's basement um and so just clean up your room in which case all he's doing is substituting the kind of horrible eternal you know oppressive feminine mommy for a daddy you know, and then that's all he's doing. Or if you can take the messages and if you take it as a metaphor, clean up your room, it's it's respectful. You know, he's essentially saying this is wartime. Like, you know, we live in this age of sort of extreme rights and freedoms. We've devolved into chaos. Chaos, by the way, is the eternal feminine. That's the three of us. We're triple chaos. Um, so, <laughs> so chaos, we've devolved into chaos. And instead of, you know, essentially sitting and whining like little bitches, although he never talks like that, he's not very like modern, right? He talks very like somber and straight. Um, instead of whining, just like be a man. You know what I mean? Like stand yeah. up straight with your shoulders back is literally one of the things that he says. Yeah, the the writer who wrote about him for New York Magazine called it respectability politics for NEETS. And NEAT stands for not in education, employment or training. It's a it's a British term that has been reclaimed by sort of 
you know, Reddit dwellers on the internet who are presumably not the same Reddit dwellers on our backslash skincare. Um, <laughs> but I don't but, think that's true. Like, I always feel that that's like limiting and tiny. Like when we say that, like he has had deeper cultural impact than like the people who are mm-hmm. out of the workforce, you know, um, that's a that's a relatively I wouldn't say it's it's too big. It's bigger than it's ever been historically. But it's not it's like his his appeal is is more broad but that's that's the specter that he's playing off though yeah it's like if you don't shape up you will be you'll be that person yeah don't and he's like guiding people toward a different path yeah did you guys watch the video of him going back and forth with the british yes um, so okay so i was fascinated by this video he's it's it's sort of very focused in on feminist issues um they go back and forth for a long time about equal pay and i suspect a lot of what his appeal is to people who are really into him is that so he he sees um the big enemy in in life not as women not as you know people of color but as like the Marxist jargon that has found its way into uh, the universities and into HR departments and the the thought police and the PC police, that to him is the enemy, right? And so in that way, he shares some DNA with the alt-right. He is vehemently opposed to Nazism and he says racism and all kinds of things. Um, But so the trick that he performs is that he brings this like hyper logical, I'm citing studies kind of thing. Like, like she brings up the pay gap and he says, well, you need a multivariate analysis. You know, you need to like be looking at these different factors. And so he performs the guy. She's doing the sweeping, angry social justice warrior thing. And he gets to perform the role of like, no, 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 no. you're not being logical. Like in this moment, I'm not prejudiced. I'm just hyper logical. And that I think to a lot of people is like weirdly intoxicating that that he's pushing back against this like um you know this this uh the tyranny of of progress like he he gave this amazing quote to our reporter at new york magazine max reed um that you know rights are of course important but we've been talking about rights for 60 years now <laughs> like can we yeah. stop already yeah that interview couldn't have worked out better for him it wasn't actually a skillful interview like she did create straw men she was not listening to what he was saying she was not nimble like there was a lot of ways in which she just didn't hear him and just kept trotting out so you're saying women have to stay home and take like he was saying no such thing yeah. right and so she was a very she was she was easy for him to step all over. But what was interesting to me is like why people attuned to that video. Like they were there was a there was a there was a sense that people were wanting to believe some of his message and wanting to find the kind of kernel of reasonableness and resistance in him. Like people were kind of silently rooting for him and not just neat people, but there was a way in which people wanted to believe that he had a point, you know, and that his point was like people that men should that that men should make themselves like if you if what's the what's the kind of respectable thing he is saying that men should make themselves suitable partners for women. Yeah. And and he took great pains to say that he had advocated for women to make more money and that, you know, it was he he just takes great pains to make sure that he's uh, on the record, on the right side of history. And the people who are responding to him, you know, so um, Connor Friesdorf, who's like one of the sort of house conservatives at The Atlantic, loves him, you know, sort of talked about how the the woman who's interviewing him represented the worst of all internet tactic, you know, internet era argumentation. And David Brooks loves him, like these sort of traditional um, establishment conservative types like him. But he 
is really a creature of the Internet, right? So this book that he is now on this big press tour for, it began as a viral Quora answer where he had 40 rules for life, right? And so he has this, like, YouTube channel. He's sort of not that well-known in academia, but he happened to embrace technology and found this audience who were like, yeah, your random, like, quoting of studies about how lobsters show how, like, people are hierarchical in in nature, too. Like, that sounds great, right? So he's found this alternate path to the mainstream. So he is an odd—he doesn't feel like a modern person. You know, he is an odd mix that way of someone who is taking advantage of modern tools, doesn't feel like a modern person. It's a little fascistic, like the way dictators use modern tools to spread eternal messages. Um, And then if you peer closer, like he's not that he doesn't have really original ideas or anything like that. It's a lot of the alt-right um, natural hierarchy. That's the, that's the his, his sort of underlying philosophy seems to be Nietzschean, like the world is in chaos. Um, and, and you need to, we're in wartime, and you need to stand up and fight and be soldiers. And the second part of it is the natural hierarchy. Like there is a hierarchy, you know, men have a role, women have a role. And that's the part he doesn't explore really that forcefully because it would it would it would it would force him to take um kind of unacceptable positions but he does i think believe that hierarchies are natural i don't know if he then believes that like women shouldn't work and they should stay home and make babies but that's often the natural end of that argument and there's a lot of like jungian archetypes in his you know like chaos is the eternal feminine and you know like I think that plays into like men are like this, women are like this when you're in archetype territory. And he also uh, is he, he refuses to use preferred pronouns. Yes. He's transphobic. He he is certainly not uh, he's extraordinarily insensitive and offensive when it comes to transgender people. Yeah. And, and, and he's circulated, um, you know, sort of extremely alt right seeming memes about um Muslims, in addition to trans people, he, he seems not great on that issue. Um, he has perpetuated a conspiracy theory that Google populates the first page of results uh, when you Google bikini with with bigger women. It's like he's just like he's he's a little sly, kind of um, crazier than he plays on TV. Sometimes I think he's like a response to Milo Yiannopoulos. We're like, oh, that one didn't yeah. work. He was too cuckoo, you know. So we're gonna. Mm-hmm. It's basically essentially exactly the same message, but we're gonna take it in kind of sober professorial form now. Or like, or like, remember James Damore, the Google guy? Like that guy was citing all kinds of studies, right? Or, or even Andrew Sullivan making arguments about arguments about gender essentialism in New York Magazine. Like, you know, he he's he's occupying that like the rigorous scientific like Milo's a provocateur. I think this guy is like a grown up, like uh, clubbable version of James Damore. And I will say there's nothing that makes me angrier than gender essentialism. It drives me mm-hmm. crazy. And especially the certainty about gender essentialism, because even if you want to be a gender essentialist, you have to be honest and admit that you have no idea right? And that you're picking and choosing the way people pick and choose from the Bible. It's like, you don't know, like you weren't there. We have no idea what the gender dynamics were or which ones are shifting. And you can't just choose like, oh, I'm going to chuck this one, but I'm going to keep this one. This one has been around forever in history. It's very, very based on very little information. Yeah. So listeners, um, if you have listened to Jordan Peterson and I think there's a great alternative out there. Please send us your alternative guru. We'll have an alternative guru contest and see if any of them fit the bill. Double X Gabfest at Slate.com. Let's move on to our recommendations. June, you want to go first? I do. Uh, before I get to recommend my recommendation, though, I just want to mention another Slate podcast. Hang Up and Listen is 
the if you only listen to one sports podcast, let it be Hang Up and Listen. Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis have the most amazing, progressive, fascinating, challenging conversations about sports and the Olympics is coming up. So I'll be paying extra attention. Hang Up and Listen every Monday afternoon. And my recommendation this week is maybe an odd one. I have watched every episode of Law and Order SVU. I couldn't for, for a minute remember what it stands for. Uh, Special Victims Unit. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of an exploitative show, but it has got and it's not been the best season. You know, the current team is definitely not the best. But there, there was a recent episode about, um, you know, a basic kind of, uh, you know, the typical SVU storyline. Uh, someone's raped, uh, challenges her rapist. But it felt very different. It was like a Me Too episode, uh, Me Too era episode of SVU. And in a way, it's kind of like the Judge Rosemary Aquilina sort of situation in that it's not how most of the world works. Most of the world, the real world that is, or would not just you know embrace and that we wouldn't have the police and the, and the DA just doing whatever they could to support this woman and to get justice. But it's kind of fascinating to watch SVU in this current cultural moment and the recent episode Flight Risk that uh, originally aired on January 17th was particularly interesting in that regard. I've actually never seen that show. I oh, my it. God. Neither have I. Oh, my Not God. Not a law and order person. I know. I hate procedurals, but I know. I know. It's Everybody loves it. Um, I'll watch it for June's in honor of June. <laughs> okay. I um, I have a couple of recommendations. The Onion podcast, A Very Fatal Murder. Oh, my God, is it funny? Uh, it basically makes fun of everything that I do in my other podcast life, <clears throat> like all the conventions of kind of storytelling podcasts. And um, I mean, it's it's a parody of Serial, but it's just so funny. It is so funny and well-written. So I want to recommend that. Everyone should tune into it. And second is an amazing article in The New Yorker, which we almost talked about by Jill Lepore, who's always so great, when Barbie went to war with Bratz. Uh, it's about a legal war between Barbie and the Bratz dolls, um, but it's about so much more, just culture battles, hashtag me too, uh, workplaces. It's it's a really it's an it's 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 such a clever window into a giant huge world. So everyone should read it if they haven't already. Noreen, um, I have two quick recommendations. One um, that has I think been partly responsible for the uh, skincare obsession. It's a little bit of log rolling, but New York Magazine's the strategist website is just really good. It's a shopping website, but it's smart and um, like they have great taste and um, they go insanely deep on rabbit holes, like the thirty you know Korean skincare products under twenty dollars or whatever. It's just fun to read and has tone in a way that a lot of shopping sites don't, and is um, price conscious. So New York Magazine's the strategist, and then um, I'm like really late to this June. I'm sure you've either uh, recommended this or hated or whatever. <laughs> um, but the BBC podcast In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, what's your relationship to it? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Too complicated. Complicated. Well, I'm new to it. I'm. It's like uh, everyone else did their college course podcast a year just ago and I'm in that phase of my life. I'm um, so he he takes a subject like Cicero or cephalopods or cephalopods, as he says, um, and and assembles a panel to talk about them. And the thing that's great about him, um, and I think not a patronizing way, is that there's always 
a woman or many women or a couple women on the panel that he assembles. And that's clearly something that he has thought through. Um, so I'll talk to you offline about your complicated relationship to it. Um, so you'll be much smarter in a month than you are now. We look forward to that. <laughs> um, well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, a wonderful producer, Verilyn Williams, our production assistant, Daniel Schrader. Remember, we are looking for an intern. So please apply doublexgabfest at slate.com and put in the subject line, intern. Um, Listeners, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment. It helps other listeners learn about the show and it helps us. So for June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen, and we will talk to you again in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.